Hi there. Thanks for listening to WERU-FM. My name is Kate. Today I am hosting a special feature called Down East in Action, which is a series of interviews highlighting the efforts of local organizations to meet the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan. This is the very first episode, so thank you for joining me. Please enjoy conversations with Eliza Townsend, the Maine Conservation Policy Director for the Appalachian Mountain Club, Betsy Cook, the Maine State Program Director for the Trust for Public Land, and later Hans Carlson, the Executive Director of Blue Hill Heritage Trust. Thank you for joining me. Uh, my first question is super basic, but I was hoping you could both Eliza and Betsy tell me a little bit about the mission of your organizations and how its mission and goals align with the Maine Climate Action Plan. I am um, Betsy Cook and I'm the Maine Director with the Trust for Public Land and our mission is to create parks and protect land and create public land um, to the goal of ensuring that we have healthy, equitable and climate resilient communities. And so we really see a very close connection between conserving land for public benefit and public access and ensuring that our communities continue to be um, resilient in the face of climate change. So that's that's twofold, both the mitigation that comes from um, conservation, especially of forest land and sequestering carbon um, through those efforts, but also um, resiliency and helping to build um, parks throughout Maine or throughout the country that um, can absorb some of the impacts of um, the changing weather we're going to have with climate change um, and examples like helping to absorb um, stormwater, more flooding. Um, so we definitely see that all of these things are very related. A climate resilient and healthy and equitable community all can happen together and are very related and that parks and public lands are a, a really critical um, part of helping communities stay strong. AMC is actually the nation's oldest conservation, recreation and education organization. It started as a hiking club in, the, in 1876, but has evolved to have the mission uh, to foster the protection, enjoyment and understanding of the outdoors. We have a science uh, department, little known fact about AMC, and have been measuring the the weather atop the White Mountains for 100 years. And so we have science that shows that winters in New England are becoming shorter, warmer, and more, uh, they're fluctuating. And we're living the impacts of, of climate change, um, both as an organization and, and we all here in Maine are experiencing it now. Um, so we're very much interested in issues of climate change. And since 2003, as Betsy alluded, we've been working on a project called the Maine Woods Initiative, in under which we have, we now own 75,000 acres of forest land in Piscataquis County in the area known as the 100 Mile Wilderness. And uh, we're in the process of, of acquiring another 27,000 uh, acres, which we manage for sustainable forestry, along with backcountry education, backcountry recreation, education, uh, and even carbon sequestration. We hold three contracts for carbon sequestration. We've witnessed the impacts of climate change, and 
we are very much engaged in a hands-on way in attempting to mitigate it. Thank you for telling us a little bit about your organizations. Um, you both talked about carbon sequestration. Maybe you could go more in depth on that specific issue or sea level rise. I probably can speak more knowledgeably about um, carbon sequestration and the importance of forests in the face of climate change. I, I looked up a couple numbers and um, across the country, U.S. forests remove between 12 to 14 percent of total greenhouse gas emissions. So they're an incredibly important sink when it comes to um, taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, they're not the whole solution, but they're really an important part of um, ensuring that we can sequester carbon, pull it out of the atmosphere. And in Maine, um, 89% of Maine is forested. 93% um, of those forests are privately owned. And so those private landowners have um, their own decisions they can make around how to manage forest land, which is why conservation or other tools like purchasing carbon offsets from forest landowners can be really critical to ensure that we protect our forests that are currently pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and also um, make sure that those forests are then managed to a high level and to um, make it so that the trees can pull as much carbon out as possible. Yeah, so Maine's forests pull out 75% of Maine's greenhouse gas emissions. So they basically sequester 75% of what we're emitting, um, which again, it, it's very important that we work on emitting less, um, but also continue to keep our forests intact and conserved and pulling that out of the out of the air. And um, I also, the last piece there is that we're at a rate of about 10,000 acres per year being um, converted from forest land to infrastructure or housing or non-forest land uses. So they're super important. Um, Maine's forests are one of the most important anywhere in the country around carbon sequestration, and they're also threatened and being converted to uh, other uses. And Eliza, yeah, you have more on the ground experience around that. <laughs> well, one exciting aspect about Maine is so not only do we have a really high level of uh, carbon sequestration in our forests, but we sit essentially in the center of the Adirondack Appalachian Forest, which spans from New York to the Gaspé Peninsula. And the Western Maine Mountains, which are a big piece of what which part of Maine is in that forest, have a, 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 an amazing amount of topography so that there are microhabitats, microclimates. And that means that they not only does the forest absorb carbon, but we've got habitat connectivity from New York up into Canada and and places both high, you know, high mountain uh, ecosystems and and lower land ecosystems. So that promotes biodiversity. There's there's a, a, the connectivity that's necessary for especially animal species, and there's the biodiversity that is the, you know, that's the core to life on Earth. And so not only are we absorbing carbon and fighting car climate change in that way, but we are we have, there's a role for Maine to play in adaptation. Now you mentioned sea level rise. You're well familiar with the causeway out to Deer Isle and 
that I believe is a, there's a photograph of it in the climate action plan because it's an example of the kind of infrastructure that that's under threat from climate change. We're now seeing what were once considered to be, you know, one in a hundred year events. Uh, and they're repeating more often than a whole lot more often than once in a hundred years. I've seen the damage here in Portland where uh, pieces of the East End Trail have been washed away. Another part of the trail that I like to use, you know, I, we're seeing the, the waters rise and we have to think about what happens when they rise high enough to threaten our, our infrastructure, including transportation infrastructure. I'm very glad that you brought that up because one of my next questions was going to be like, why should the common person care? Like, why is it relevant to them? And one of those reasons is sea level rise in particular affects transportation it affects daily life and that maybe you can come up with some other ways or other reasons why the average person would care i had a friend who there was one of these extreme storm events in portland the a lot of portland is converted land but it was once marshland you know or even part of back cove and she was parked at whole foods and her car was destroyed by this flood I also think, you know, there's so many impacts, too, that we all in Maine are experiencing and are about to experience um, if we aren't really active in addressing the climate crisis. Um, And one of those is economic impacts. So as we all know, Maine is really... Maine's economy is really tied to our um, outdoors, whether it's outdoor recreation, working forests, our agricultural industry, our working waterfronts, and dependent on the Gulf of Maine. Um, We have so many industries that are really reliant on a stable climate, basically. And I mean, just speaking to for um, news one that I get joy out of as well, um, our ski industry, our outdoor recreation industries, as the we're already seeing that there are, I think, about 24 less snow days, ski, skiing days a year than 10 years ago. And um, that's a recreational use I like to do, but it's also part of our economy. Um, and so I'll just importance of um, continuing to keep our climate, our natural resources healthy, because so many main jobs depend on that. And they're going to be really impacted by climate change. Another really close to home example here in Maine is that the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the world's oceans. Copepods, which are the food source for the right whale, are moving north in search of colder waters. And that's leading the right whale, which is an endangered species, into shipping lanes where they're much more vulnerable to ship strikes. A lot of focus has been on uh, lobster lines, fishing lines, and uh, whale entanglement. But the root cause of the problem is the warming Gulf of Maine. Similarly, all parts of Maine experienced drought last year, uh, including people's wells going dry. There were very serious impacts for farmers and that threatens our food systems, of course. The Maine Forest Service put out a record number of forest fires, over 1,100 forest fires. So it's real, it's here, and it's hitting people in in very real ways. Unfortunately, I think some people don't recognize that it is here, but as you're saying, they're feeling it in their jobs, in their industries. And I think that's one of the biggest deterrents to 
making change at a large scale is the financial cost of it. But actually, the thing that the Maine Climate Action Plan does really well is it speaks to how you can save money by, act, by you know, trying to respect the climate. Yeah, and I, I think on the um, forest land carbon sequestration front, too, tying that to the economic benefits, there are ways where we can manage our forest land here in Maine to sequester more carbon, to help mitigate the impacts of climate change, and to keep those forests working, and to keep them providing jobs in the forest industry. Um, So one really close to home, great example um, in Washington County is the Downey's Lakes Community Forest. And that community forest was created by the community um, to have control of their local forest land. It's still working for us, provides jobs um, to the county. And also they um, did one of the biggest and I think first sales of carbon offsets um, in Maine. And that's a land trust that, um, you know, again, a community run land trust that really took a hold of their future, um, both when it came to continuing to have natural resource-based jobs and being really out in front. I think it was 2013 or so when they did this carbon sale of recognizing we are dependent on having, trying to mitigate the impacts of climate change. And and also natural forest land owners can um, have financial benefit from doing carbon sales as well. So yeah, to your point of um, a lot of the climate solutions that we turn to and the main climate action plan has laid out have um, real economic benefits to the state too. You two just keep handing me transitions that are just so (laughs) seamless Um, because I was going to ask about how communities and individuals could help with conservation efforts. So you just listed one example on Washington. Absolutely. Oh, so many ideas. Um, So there's so many different ways. I think at the very local level, um, there's land trusts throughout the state or organizations like ours who are actively working to protect um, and like Appalachian Mountain Club um, to to protect land. And, and we as the Trust Republic land are very focused on community led efforts. Um, so are responsive to where communities are saying we need a new park or new public land or conserved land here. Um, and those are some of the most wonderful projects to be a part of when it's again, a local community taking hold of their own future. So that is one way. The other one that I'd just really call out and we'll let Eliza speak to as well is um, the importance of public funding to conserve land and to allow for communities to be able to do, do these conservation efforts. So the Land for Maine's Future program here in Maine is very underfunded. Um, a new bond bill has not been passed in over 10 years, and that's a critical funding source to help get to the Climate Action Plan's goal of protecting 30% of Maine by 2030. Um, so there's not, you know, again, to the point of making investments now that are then going to pay off in the future, um, really push everyone in the state to get involved and um, advocate for increased land for Maine's future funding. And I will turn it over to Liza, who's really an expert there. <laughs> so we, we know that the 30 by 30 effort is a global effort to preserve 30% of uh, of our land and waters by the year 2030 in order to preserve biodiversity, which is essential to life on earth. Um, Here in Maine, the Climate Action Plan includes that goal, 30 by 30, but 
as Betsy has said, our, our premier land conservation program is virtually out of funds. It's a beloved program. It has conserved since 1987, 600,000 acres of land, uh, of all types, um, including working forests. I believe there are 315,000 acres of working forest, working farmland, um, nearly 10,000 acres of working farmland and working waterfronts, um, which are, there are only about a couple dozen of those, but as you can imagine, they are incredibly necessary, um, especially at a time when everybody would like to have their house by the ocean. Um, how do we get how do we get that seafood we all love to eat onto the land um, unless there are working waterfronts? So we are engaged, Betsy and I, in an effort to see the Land for Maine's Future program refunded this year for the first time in a long time. And there are bills in the legislature. There are two current bills, one sponsored by Representative Patrick Corey and another by Senator Kathy Breen. Hers is the... Uh, holds the largest amount. It would it would be $60 million for the Land for Maine's Future program. Uh, we do anticipate that the governor will be putting forward a bond package as well, but it has not yet been announced. Um, so calling your legislator and letting them know that you support this and that this is a high priority for you would be one of the first things people could do. I believe we did some back of the envelope. We did some back of the envelope calculations that for Maine to protect 30% of our land by 2030, which is one of the climate action plan goals um, to make sure we have a, a strong future here, um, it's going to cost $1 billion. So that's a, that's a big um, price tag there. But, um, but the point is that there's lots of different funding sources that can help to make that happen. There's federal funding that's available. We have the ability to draw down $40 million in federal funding per year, um, but really, really need Land for Maine's future funding, state of Maine funding as the match to be able to actually access that federal money. It's, it's critical to protect this land as a natural climate solution and also really critical that we have the, the funding there to do it and follow through on the climate action plan goals. Land for Maine's future uh, does require match. It's a 50% match. Um, but in reality, more often than not, it produces more like a three to one match. So if public dollars go a long way. They pull in federal funds, they pull in private philanthropy, and they have a, an impact locally as people use those places to recreate or to make a living. Other than financial resources, are there other resources that your organizations maybe don't have or are light on that they would benefit from having? People. It's it's all about getting communities active and activated around um, land conservation as a climate solution. Hiring great people in Maine to work for land conservation organizations as well and having the ability and the resources to do that. So I think the, the people here you know, people are what got us into this mess and people are, gonna, are ultimately going to be what gets us out. Something that I think our two organizations have in common is a desire to connect people to the outdoors. And um, we've seen in the past year just how incredibly important access to the outdoors has been, not just for mental health, but for physical health, for the ability to socialize with friends and family. And 
across the state, resources have really been under pressure, whether it's your local state park, your local trail. I'm a, I'm a hiker and trails that I've known well have, have really begun to show some of that, um, that pressure that they are experiencing, whether it's graffiti in inappropriate places or just plain wear and tear. We desperately want people to be out there recreating and appreciating the world around them. We need more people who can speak up for it, and we need people who will who will behave ethically in the outdoors and be willing to share with others and 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 treat it well, so that we can all enjoy it and that it will be here for the long term. It sounds like you're kind of short-staffed, and I'm not asking for myself. But are there internships or jobs available to young people at either of your organizations? Agency's hiring right now for seasonal positions, both in the White Mountains and here in Maine. And those are those are hard jobs, but they're they're great jobs that have been a great starting point for many, many people. Myself included. But one of my first jobs um, when I was in college was working for the Appalachian Mountain Club in the backcountry hut system in the White Mountains National Forest. And it was honestly, it's it's the reason I'm here sitting here today talking to you all. That's awesome. So another way that people can get connected is through educational programs. And I know you said, Eliza, that AMC has some of those. Sure. AMC does a a variety of programs ranging from uh, staffed and led excursions to um, when, when COVID allows, there's an adventure travel program. Um, and we do environmental education in the schools as well, obviously in the areas where we have a base. So in both in Piscataquis County and in New Hampshire, we provide environmental education. And depending on location, um, there are also environmental programs based at the, the lodges and huts. Something we're really excited about at the moment is we're uh, applying for international dark sky park status. Um, and so astronomy it will be part of our outdoor education, which is which is pretty cool. I think that piece, too, of just um, connecting kids um, through educational programs um, to the natural world and to understanding impacts of climate change um, is obviously really critical. And we have in Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont, actually, Chester Public Land has been starting um, is about to roll out a map to basically show where there are gaps in access for schools to be able to access outdoor spaces close to schools. So obviously another really eye-opening impact of the pandemic was how many schools needed outdoor space. Um, And some had them and some didn't. And some don't have parks nearby or woods nearby or publicly accessible outdoor classrooms nearby. Um, And so by creating more conserved land near schools. Not only are we going to have some climate impacts, some community benefits from community being able to get out in them, but those educational impacts too, and being able to connect kids directly to their own backyard to really start to learn and understand um, the natural world and, and then be advocates for it their whole lives. I think I take it super for granted that I had access to that growing up just around me. I didn't even have to go to school for that, but there are some kids who are just not exposed to it unless there's a program built in at school. And like you were saying that that's, it starts there. That's where the advocates are raised. 
And although we, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as outdoorsy here in Maine, not everybody has the same access. Not everybody has access to a nearby park, a place to cool off, even trees in their neighborhood to keep their neighborhood cool. So that's something that we need to be aware of. And it's another argument for investing in land for Maine's future and other strategies to make sure that everybody can get outside and, and benefit from it physically, mentally, educationally, socially. And then kind of just circling back to what your organizations are doing specifically, do you each want to share one short-term goal of your organization? I'll share a little bit. And building on what Eliza just referenced, we're really committed to the trust public land across the country and in and Maine on creating equitable access to the outdoors and to parks and ensuring that all Mainers do have fair and welcoming access. Um, so right now, I believe that over 65% of Maine people live farther than a 10 minute walk to any publicly accessible outdoor space. And a quarter of Mainers live farther than a 10 minute drive to the outdoors. Our big visionary goal is to have a publicly accessible outdoor space within 10 minutes of every Mainer. Over the next five years, by 2025, our goal is to um, protect 30,000 additional acres here in Maine and to create, I believe, 10 new parks and public lands. We have a goal of having our operations be net zero by the year 2045. And something that I didn't mention earlier was that we are engaged in habitat restoration for fish in Piscataquis County. And as a result, we're partnering with the Department of Marine Resources, Trout Unlimited, a variety of partners. But we've we've achieved the return of Atlantic salmon to their traditional headwaters in the, the middle branch of the Pleasant River for the first time in 200 years. And that is just something that fills my heart full. Awesome. I wanted to know what your proudest moment in your respective organizations has been. I think one of my proudest moments was getting to be a part of creating the Bethel Community Forest. Um, That's in Bethel, Maine, and it's about two miles from the center of town. And it was such an amazing experience to really see the community come together to say, this land is going to be developed and sold if we don't do something about it. I think on my part, I would I would just say that I think that the Maine Woods Initiative that AMC is undertaking is visionary. We are conducting forestry there. We harvest 6,000 to 7,000 cords of wood a year that go to local mills. So we are contributing to the economy, but we're doing it in a sustainable fashion. We're not using an industrial model, but we are going to mixed age mixed size trees, which is a healthy forest ecosystem. And we're engaged in habitat restoration for fish. There's a side benefit for birds and for other, for mammalian species. To combine all of that with um, with the outdoor education that goes on to the, the three facilities, our former sporting camps. Um, so turning those into a viable economic model, welcoming people to engage uh, physically in the outdoors. Um, All of that together makes a really wonderful picture. And it's all very much based on close integration with the community, being being community-rooted. It's really wonderful to me how these projects become kind of, they kind of snowball when you get the community involved and you get the community excited. 
And it's also just a great way to interact as a group. Last question is, I'm curious, but what are your favorite trails? The Bayside Trail here in Portland is one of my favorites. I, when I first moved to Portland, there's a running group that runs on the Bayside Trail. And um, it just became like my home and my people. And um, every Sunday morning knew that we would meet at Coffee by Design and go out and start running on the trail. And so it really has that like connection to place. I think close to home, I, I, I really love the East End Trail in Portland. Um, and I think the other thing I just like is really is exploring, is finding new places. This is just a reminder that you are listening to WERU-FM. Thank you for listening to Down East in Action, a series of interviews highlighting the efforts of local organizations to meet the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan. You just heard my interview with Eliza Townsend, the Maine Conservation Policy Director at Appalachian Mountain Club, and Bessie Cook, the Maine State Program Director for the Trust for Public Land. We are going to transition now into an interview with Hans Carlson, the Executive Director at Blue Hill Heritage Trust. Just for audience purposes, what is the mission of Blue Hill Heritage Trust, and in what ways does its mission overlap with the Maine Climate Action Plan? Yeah, our our mission is sort of threefold. Um, We are a, a a conservation organization. So um, our first order of business is, is conserving property um, on the Blue Hill Peninsula and property which land, land parcels, which are of conservation value in terms of habitat and <clears throat> water quality and environmental reasons, but also parcels that are um, important for community. Um, those are sort of our two criteria. And then we are also increasingly a community organization so we are we, we have we have acquired enough land and enough big parcels parcels of land that we are um, in the business of managing land as well and so we are managing our property for a whole variety of reasons but one of the prime reasons um, is to um, mitigate the effects of climate change um, and then we are also in the business of, of educating and engaging with community around those those issues um, and trying to talk to people about not only what we're doing on our property, but also what they might do on their property. And climate change is, is, is really central to, to everything that we're thinking about um, you know, in a whole variety of ways. There are, there are the obvious effects of climate change on the land, but there are also the the social and cultural effects of climate change in terms of increasing numbers of people wanting to come to the coast of Maine and live. For me, the coronavirus uh, situation of the last year has been a, a little bit of a snapshot of what is going to happen over the course of, you know, probably the next 10 or 15 years here on the coast of Maine, um, where people are going to choose to live here because it's a nicer place to live and it feels safer and it feels more secure. So managing land for dealing with the effects of climate change and trying to, to try and mitigate, um, but also conserving land with an eye toward preserving the quality of life that we all enjoy here um, while acknowledging that more people are going to come here and more people are going to live and there's going to be development and um, trying to find a balance. Would you say that the coronavirus or the Maine Climate Action Plan and its publication have either of those posed significant challenges to the work you've already been doing? 
No, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say challenges. I, I no. In, in, in fact, quite the opposite in, in many respects. Um, we saw an influx of people here um, last spring around this time, uh, and we saw use of our properties in a way that just hasn't happened before at this time of year. Um, and all and all really all through the season and not just recreational use, but but quite clearly sort of public health use um, people getting outside and, and finding some mental space and comfort. Um, so that part of it was re- a real validation of what we've been doing for 35 years. Right. And, uh, you know, conservation is so often future focused. Um, this is, we need to do this for the future. We need to do this for the future. And, 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 um, this last year has been a real validation of, of all of those efforts, um, cause the future was, was here and now. And, um, so that part certainly, no, I, no, I don't think the coronavirus has had any sort of, um, been any sort of a challenge. <clears throat> um, I think the climate action plan is really a benefit to us. It gives, it gives a kind of a focus, um, to the work that we're doing. And given that it's a state document, it also gives us, it gives us an understanding of what the state's commitment is. Um, and therefore what the statements, the state's commitment, um, is to the work that we do. I'm, I'm very much hoping that we are going to see a, an influx of money into the uh, Land for Maine's Future program, which will align with the Climate Action Plan and will also you know, benefit organizations like mine a great deal in terms of conserving more property in Maine. Really, in the last two or three years, crossed over a watershed um, and I, and I mean, we as an organization, but also, so we as a greater society have crossed over that watershed where we were always, you know, we were kind of worried about talking about climate change. Is it going to be too controversial? Is it, you know, and, and all, all of a sudden, no, it's not. It's, you know, we, in fact, you know, people are pushing us to talk more about it and to, to act more about it. So having a state plan, which gives some shape to that is, is really, um, really beneficial, I think. So as far as some of the specific issues that the Maine Climate Action Plan addresses, I had highlighted carbon sequestration, but I don't know if you want to speak to that or any of the other things that it addresses. Yeah, I mean, carbon sequestration is an interesting subject on a whole variety (laughs) of levels. before we talk about the nuts and bolts of it, I think we, you know, we need to, need to acknowledge that not everybody thinks that carbon sequestration projects and and balancing carbon use against carbon sequestration is actually beneficial <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in the long run to, to yeah. climate action. Um, uh, that said, I have been involved in, in a carbon project, and I have looked at the the, the possibilities of doing that uh, on our property. It, it's complex. It, it's it's a very it's a very dynamic system. Um, everything that I knew about carbon sequestration and carbon projects five years ago is really out of date at this point. Um, and so, um, I'm feeling a little undereducated, uh, and I need to go back and spend some time and think about it some more and, and read up on on where the where the systems have gotten to and where the technology has taken us in terms of being able to to do carbon projects on smaller and smaller pieces of property um, and, and, and create economic value 
um, which is, you know, as, as a as a nonprofit, um, we're always, you know, economic, there's an economics involved in, in conservation work and, and um, the potential of turning conservation work um, to profit is compelling. Right. So right now you're donation based. So we're, we're donation, private donation based, and then we're also grant funded um, by, from a variety of locations. Yeah. yeah. Aside from being a for-profit organization, are there other resources that you don't have that you think would be helpful to Blue Hill Heritage Trust? All, all organizations like ours struggle <clears throat> with convincing people that money is necessary for the whole range of activities that we do. Um, that money to buy property is important, but also money to fund staffing and, and operations is important because that's that's what allows us to investigate and to, and to protect property. Um, so it's it, it it it's always a challenge. <clears throat> I believe that the more pipelines of money that you can have coming into an organization like ours, the, the better off you are. Um, and I I think nonprofits. I, I'm certainly thinking uh, in terms of diversification into you know, a number of possible areas um, that still fit within our nonprofit status and fit within our mission, but which are beyond just, you know, charitable donations for our work. So aside from, I know you do the conservation work and maintenance <clears throat> of trails. I've also seen webinars mm -hmm. through Facebook. Um, yep. I usually hit interested and then don't show up, but <laughs> uh, anyhow, what are the other areas that you are all involved in? And It's it's actually been a really interesting part of, of the last year of everybody being stuck inside and being separated is, is that our our virtual presence has, be, has become much more robust um, than it was before. Uh, we had talked for two or three years about needing to do more online and archive things and, and all. And, and this really forced us to do it. And um, in, in, in one respect, it was, it was fascinating because it, it, it brought in people from a really wide ge geography. We had people tuning in from Eastern Europe and Africa and Central America and, and how, how they, how they found us. I'm not really sure, <laughs> but, but it, it was really fascinating. Uh, and then, and then the other thing that, that we learned was that um, there's an inclusivity to online presentations um, that we hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about before, but which was really powerful is, is that one of the things that we learned from coronavirus as a society is like, oh, oh, this is what it means to be stuck inside all the time and not being able to get outside. Um, and um, so our programming was available now to, a, to a, a lot of people who are just not able, you know, to get out in the woods when we do programming um, in person. And so we're going to we're going to go back out and do live programming again because everybody likes that, but we are going to continue to do um, online programming um, into the future. And one of the, th one of the, the things that happened over the last year is that um, we really had to, to adapt to a new situation. So much of, so much of our programming really was focused on people outdoors and, um, 
uh, being together and and really immersive in in, in some sense. And um, so, I, coronavirus has actually been sort of a not only a learning experience but a growth experience for us in a lot of ways, which has been really really interesting. You're going back to your question. You know, conservation of land is central. Um, the stuff that you see online is central. <clears throat> um, getting people out on the land is is really central as well. And and for more than just programs that highlight recreational activity, <clears throat> as 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 important as that is, um, focusing a lot of our energy now on. Um, Sort of a larger definition of stewardship. So really, trying to trying to work with people on on things like blue, managing blueberry lands and composting, and you know a whole variety of activities that they can go out and actually put their hands on the land uh, and do something, um, which to me is really primary. And this is this is my own philosophical point of view is that you know human beings real primal interaction with with the natural world is one of work and thought right and the, and the two really fit together and um, human beings are sometimes at their worst when they're working with the land but they're also sometimes at their best when they're working in the land and focusing on that aspect of the human relationship um, really talking to people about how we as human beings can can do things on the land that benefit us and the land at the same time that 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 can happen um, it doesn't happen nearly as often as it should but it can and uh, so focusing focusing our, our programming on that as well is does this programming have a set schedule or is it you know special programs certain times of the month um, we have a sort of an annual flow to things, um, which has been disrupted over the last year. Um, but um, a majority of our programming happens <clears throat> in the warmer weather when more people are here to partake. And, um, and a lot of our programming is focused around school activities. So either either individual school programs or um, we, we, do, we do an immersive school program as well, sort of an, an ongoing throughout the school year, once a week, um, uh, day long program with, with school kids, um, which was just, just rolling out when the coronavirus hit and sort of went on pause for a year, but we'll, we'll be getting back to that um, again soon. Yeah, I was only asking because people might be listening to the radio and want to know where to find you, but you do have a website. <laughs> we, yeah, <clears throat> and um, yeah, that, I mean, that, that really, the, our website and our Facebook page are probably the two best places to engage with, with what's going on, and um, it's an ever-changing scene, um, and now that people are getting vaccinated and, we're, you know, we, we have started um, tentatively, you know, getting in-person programming up and running again, uh, things will be developing as the year, as the year goes. So it's a little, it's a little hard to say exactly what it's, how it's going to play out over the next six or eight months, but um, it feels like we're going to be getting back to, to doing for, for what, for us is just more normal programming. So I have two questions that you already kind of spoke to when you were talking about programming, but one of them 
is just a general what can you elaborate on what citizens can do and to be proactive in their daily lives as far as conservation and then the other one was how do you make people feel like that's an important thing to do like why should that matter to them Hmm. and you already kind of mentioned why it mattered to you (laughs) it might not be as intrinsic to everyone (laughs) Boy, in terms of what people can do, um, well, you know, honestly, I, I think the, the answer that covers most of the specifics on that list is just self-awareness um, and you know, awareness of what the effect is of any given action that you take. Um, and that that takes conscious effort and and it can be tiring sometimes. Um, and, you know, we don't all, you know, none, none of us accomplish that self-awareness on a, you know, a hundred percent of the time, but just having that, you know, having an awareness of what your purchases mean, what your activity means, um, that will inevitably have an effect on the larger issue of climate and, um, and, and sustainability in, in, in general. If you have kids, if you have grandkids, if you, um, have a sense of the future, um, you have to realize that um, uh, things, things are already changing dramatically. And, um, and, and for me, it's sort of the unknown of the change that's, that's, that's the most worrying thing. Um, the fact that it's a little warmer here, I mean, you know, I like winter, but also it's, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm not averse to the warmer weather too, but um, I worry about, I worry about things like drought, um, like we saw last summer. Um, it's already too dry, you know, out of the woods when you walk around and um, that's going to have long-term effects. Um, if you think about what happened this last year, um, again, going back to coronavirus, because it's such a great <clears throat> example, you know, we saw fragility in our systems um, over this last year, particularly last spring when everything changed so quickly. And um, we saw we saw fragility, which I think foreshadows things to come in terms of wanting to be more in control of our food systems, uh, you know, at a, at a more local level and under, you know, and understanding that um, as climate change happens and the Central Valley of California no longer produces, you know, salad all through the winter, um, that's going to change things here. <laughs> and, 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 it, and in ways that are going to be much more dramatic than we realize. Um, I think going into the grocery store this last spring and seeing empty shelves in some places was it was certainly a new thing in my life. I think those are the things that we have to think about when we think about climate change. Climate change is going to disrupt a lot. It, it might, it, it might not. Some of the things that happen might not be irreparable in terms of disruption, but they're going to be hard to deal with in the moment, and they're going to feel really dramatic. Um, and it would be just so much better if we didn't have to, you know, if we didn't have to do that. So I think that you know the reasons for caring are are myriad, but human beings are best at thinking about themselves. <laughs> and, um, and yeah. I don't want to be cynical about it, but we are. And um, uh, <laughs> so think about yourself. That's, you know, think, think about the last year and think about what that would, what it would mean if we were going to roll four or five or six years, you know, with that sort of disruption. Good sentiment. Not a positive one, but 
a good one. You know, and I don't, and I, I don't, I don't want to be negative because I actually am quite hopeful that <clears throat> that human beings can turn around and do the right thing. Um, we so often take things right to the brink um, before we take action. Uh, that seems seems to be in our nature as well. Um, but uh, I think we can make the changes that we need to make to to at least mitigate to the level where it's not going to be a disaster. I you know so I so I am hopeful, um, but I also have a, a fairly you know realistic view of human behavior, <laughs> my, my, own, my own included. <laughs> so it's probably best to have a balance. On to that point as well about the difference in perspectives in people in different age groups. There's a big push for youth activism and mm -hmm. youth involvement in the community. So is there a way for young people to get involved at Blue Hill Heritage Trust? Are there internships, et cetera? We, we, we do have an intern program that runs every summer, um, and we, we hire two, two people, um, two college students to come in and, and work with us. Um, there are certainly volunteer opportunities for um, uh, younger people who you know, want to come in, and, and there are a variety of ways that they can engage, and it really sort of depends on where, where we, we have enough facets that we can meet people in, in a number of different places. Um, we have a high school student right now who's doing some um, some research on land history on, on one of our properties, and, and um, which may turn into a, um, an interpretive media project um, for us and, and, you know, for her to put on her resume as well. Um, so, the, yeah, there are a whole variety of, of ways. Um, and, and I think, you know, for... For anybody who's interested, the best again, the best thing to do is to go and look at our webpage or, or our Facebook page and just see the kinds of things that we're doing and and, and see if there's a place to to engage um, in, in in a volunteer fashion. But certainly, you know, we we have a staff of six, but we are still an organization that depends a great deal on people volunteering their time and helping us out in that way. Good, good. And I'm sure there are many willing people because there are so many people that use your land every day. Yeah, we've had a, we've had a tremendous amount of great feedback this last year um, from people who, um, and some people who've never used our properties before and, and, and finally had the time and the inclination to go out and, and, and realize, you know, what, what was out there. And so it's been really, it's been really, really positive. What are three short-term goals? of your organization? We, we want to conserve more property on the peninsula. Um, that, that part of the job is, is not done. Um, we want to find more ways of intersecting with our communities on the peninsula um, and finding where we can add value there as well. Uh, you, you know, using using our lands as the base um, for the, for that engagement, but um, given that we have, you know, we have 75, 7,800 acres that we actually own on the peninsula, and that gives us an opportunity to, to do a number of different things. And, and over the last year, we, you know, we grew potatoes on one of our property for the food bank, which you know got a lot of people involved. We um, hosting a peninsula wood bank on one of our properties. Uh, so there, there are a variety of ways of, of, of using conservation land for community community projects as, as well. Um, and I think the, the last one is really 
continuing to engage with young people, um, school age kids, high school kids, college kids, um, to to make that bridge to the next generation because um, you know the next generation is coming up and they they need to take the reins away from um, you know I'm I'm a very young baby boomer but I am a baby boomer <laughs> um, and you know it's time it's time for that transition and 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 working with people to help them understand what we know so that they can go on and figure out what they're going to figure out and what they know about, about conservation. Conservation has changed dramatically over the last 35 or 40 years, and it will continue to change um, in the way that people think about it and the way that people engage with it. Um, really working with people from, from as young an age as possible <clears throat> to, to, to frame the, frame the questions so that they can go on and, and answer them when they're, when they're ready. This is not something I wrote down, but I was just, I thought it was interesting what you said uh, when you said that you think work and thought go hand in hand. So I just wanted to know where you got that ideology. So, you know, human beings have been in a dialogue with the landscape here for, you know, tens of thousands of years, right. Um, in, in a variety of ways. And, and um, human beings, work with their hands, but they never do anything with their hands unless they have an idea in their head. And generally that idea goes along with a story that they tell to one another about why they're doing what they're doing. And then, so there's the human exchange there. But then the other, the, the dialogue that's really happening is that people put their ideas and their hands on the land and they change things. And then the land answers back, right, in, in whatever way it's going to. And and then human beings have to listen to that answer and adapt themselves. And um, uh, we have in Western society for quite a long time, our, our part of that dialogue has really been a, a, a list of demands. Um, and we haven't done a very good job of listening uh, to what the land is saying back to us. And so uh, re-engaging with that, with a real dialogue, not not turning our backs on the land, not saying that, oh, you know, human beings are going to destroy everything. We, we have to stop, right? We can't, we can't interact, you know, but, but actually going out and, and doing things and listening and then adapting our behavior depending on what the land tells us, uh, really is, it is the future of what I think of as stewardship. And stewardship being the process by which we gain by our, our interaction with the land, but we leave it as good or better than we found it for whoever comes after us. Well, we're going to end on a positive note. <laughs> what, what is your proudest moment at Blue Hill Heritage Trust? So when I took the job, the organization was in the midst of buying Surrey Forest, which is a 2,000, 2,100-acre property in Surrey. Um, and it was, it was one of the major things that engaged me with the organization and its mission um, when, I, when I came here. Um, I guess at the moment, the, the acquisition of the second big forest parcel, which came after Surrey Forests, um, which um, 
which I, I got done in a variety of ways, which are sort of inside baseball stuff that I don't need to talk about. But we now have two major forest properties on the, the northern part of the peninsula. And I so I feel pretty proud about about those blocks because they're they're important. They're important for all the things that I've been talking about um, over the last half an hour or so. And I especially like Surrey Forest because the loop is is pretty extensive. <laughs> and and it's and it's 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 amazing. Uh, you know, when I came here four and a half years ago, well, four plus years ago, um, it had just recently been cut over and cut over really, really hard um, in a way that was you know was was problematic. Um, but it's it's amazing to watch that that forest rebound. Um, it's 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 really growing back fast. Uh, and I think, and if you know if you're if you're looking for a positive note to end on, I think that for for me is it is that the land is incredibly resilient, um, particularly here in New England, and um, it has rebounded um, before, and I believe that it, you know has the ability to rebound again. Um, and it's really up to us to to find the behavior and, uh, and work ethic that allows it to rebound um, for the benefit of itself and for us as well. Alrighty, thank you again for listening to WERU-FM. We've reached the end of our programming today of Down East in Action, a series of interviews highlighting the efforts of local organizations to meet the goals of Maine's Climate Action Plan. Our guests today were Eliza Townsend, the Maine Conservation Policy Director at the Appalachian Mountain Club, Betsy Cook, the Maine State Program Director for the Trust for Public Land, and most recently, Hans Carlson, the Executive Director at Blue Hill Heritage Trust. You can find out more about what these organizations are doing and contact them as well at their websites, amcmaine.org, tpl.org, or bluehillheritagetrust.org. We will be back next month with interviews from the Climate Action Net and A Climate to Thrive. Have a wonderful day.